This morning we come to a place in our uh, journey through Mark's Gospel in understanding who Jesus is to a place where um, a story uh, is being interrupted. And I think maybe, uh, hopefully, by the time we finish this, you'll see um, that something is taking place here. There's a, there's a shift in what's happening uh, as Jesus is um, getting that much closer to the ultimate purpose for which he came. And we'll be reading uh, today from um, Mark 14. We'll read the first 11 verses there in this story of interruption. At verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment, this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said to her, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The setting here of our story is um, Jerusalem, and it's the time where everybody is coming from near and far to celebrate the Passover and the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, the amount of people in Jerusalem at this time is about ready to triple. It's going to get uh, really busy. Uh, they're coming from all over to make this um, pilgrimage to celebrate these things. This is a wonderful occasion for the Jewish people uh, as they celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, this... this uh, Reminder for them of uh, being spared from the plague of death. That last plague brought on the Egyptians as they were about ready to be set free. And they were spared from that plague. Death would not touch their house so long as they had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And they remembered uh, how they were spared from that. And death did not come to them because they took what God said to heart and and lived under the covering of the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And then the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that, that celebration of 
uh, being released from captivity, from, from slavery, and, and making their exodus away from the Egyptians out into the wilderness. And they did this with haste. And so they, they didn't worry anything about the, the, the rising of their bread. They, they made everything and they cleared everything in the house of leaven. And they remembered that this was a time where we need to move quickly. And so these two things, uh, set free from death by the blood of the Lamb and set free from slavery in Egypt as well, wonderful, pivotal points for the people of Israel to celebrate. This is the setting here. And then you have uh, the religious leaders once again, and this is uh, representative of every one of the, the different sects of the leaders all of them coming together in order to trap Jesus and put him to death. At this wonderful time where the leaders are are supposed to be focused on those things that would set them free, they're still focused on what they have been doing from the beginning, trying to find a way to kill Jesus. It seems as if right from the very beginning when Jesus was introduced to them, they came to this understanding of um, there's something they don't like about him. Already in chapter 3 when when Jesus um, heals the man with a withered hand, right away they're seeking for an opportunity to kill him. Uh, This isn't even when he's finally made it into Jerusalem. He's still in Galilee in his hometown area there. And he's already sought to be destroyed. Uh, We saw evidence of that when we were reading in in chapter 11 um, when when Jesus went into the temple in Jerusalem and he sees the, the money changers there and he overturns the tables and Jesus is himself indignant about what is happening there. And it said the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And just again in Mark 12, they were seeking to arrest him. This is after he tells the parable of the tenants. He's again speaking directly to them by way of parable. They perceived that he had told this parable against them, so they left him and went away, and again, seeking for this opportunity to kill him. They are so bent on killing Jesus from the very beginning right up until now. The only thing the religious leaders have in mind to do, even at this time of great celebration of the people, is to kill Jesus. Why? Why Why such a hatred towards him. When you and I read what he's doing, there's all kinds of wonderful good that he's doing to these, to the crowds around him. He's never coming and in, in, uh, turning them upside down and causing them to fear. They're, they're being provided for. They're being healed. They're being taught. Wonderful things are happening as Jesus is ministering to the people. But for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the whole Sanhedrin, the council of the Jewish people, he's interrupting their way of life. Jesus is going to come in and and change the focus from what they have been saying for so long to now listening to the one who teaches with authority. 
He's a threat to their way of life. People are beginning to wonder about this man Jesus and he does things so differently and they certainly don't like that as the leaders. He's taking their sphere of influence away. More and more people we're beginning to see are following after Jesus and they're leaving the influence of the leaders there. But they also fear the people. It's not that they just fear Jesus because of uh, the upset that he has in their lives, but they fear the people. They have this in their mind to, to destroy Jesus, but they're always in this place of, but if we do that, and if we do that now, that wouldn't be a good idea because everybody else sees him differently. And if we come against him now, they're going to come after us because they perceive he's a prophet. They see that he's healing people. Everybody's rejoicing when he comes into Jerusalem. If we do these things now, the people will revolt. And so as strong as they are in their convictions, they fear the people. They're not going to bring any more harm to their own ministry because of the fear of the people. They're going to just wait this out a bit. This is a, a constant place uh, uh, where the Pharisees live. They live in this constant uh, fear. What a, what, a, what a terrible way to, to go about what you're wanting to do in the world, doing it always under this suspicion of fear and, and worry about what might happen to you. This is the story that's unfolding here again, and it gets picked up again at the end. But in the middle here, there's this interruption that happens. And Mark has, has arranged it this way. We could have um, maybe put this in a different place, this uh, section here from uh, 3 through 9 here in Mark 14. And then the story would go where the Pharisees were trying to do something, but they feared the people. And then Judas came and presented an opportunity. And the story would have flowed so naturally there. But Mark puts this story in here so that we understand uh, something about the people you would see. This is one of those sandwich stories. Uh, there are things that are similar on each end of things. And there's something in the middle we're meant to notice in this. So while he's there uh, in Bethany at this house of Simon the leper, there's so many things about this story that paint a picture of exactly who Jesus is. He's at the house of a leper, uh, likely a cured leper, but still would be this one that has a stigma against him. And then a woman comes into their gathering. That again would be an upset to their culture because women don't come in the presence of men and then they're, unless they're there to serve. Not this woman though. This woman's not afraid to come into Jesus' presence. She's not afraid uh, to be there with Jesus. She's not afraid to do what she believes she needs to do. We don't have an identity here from Mark's account, but when you look at John's account of this, we know this to be Mary, the sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, who Jesus has raised from the dead. 
Mary comes in and sits there with Jesus and begins to do this a wonderful thing. But you notice the contrast already between the way the Pharisees are acting at this point and the way Mary responds. They're afraid of the people. And for her, Mary coming into the setting would have brought, and it does, sharp rebuke against her. It didn't stop her. She wasn't going to let the fear of what people might think stop her from doing what she knew she needed to do, unlike the Pharisees. They were devoted to killing him. She was devoted to loving him. Mary's, Mary's level of devotion is in some ways similar to that of the, the widow uh, that we just read about not too long ago. The widow who, who comes into the temple and, and puts in her contribution, two small coins, a penny for us, uh, of little uh, importance. It wouldn't have made any difference if that gone, had gone into the treasury or not. It was not significant at all, except it was to Jesus. And it was to the woman not to those who looked on, but to Jesus and the woman, these were very significant acts where this woman, the, the, the widow, gave everything, everything she had, the last she had to live on. And now Mary comes into the presence of Jesus and doesn't have this insignificant gift. Uh, on the contrary, this gift is valuable and everybody knows it. This, this alabaster jar of nard, this very expensive perfume, uh, is a costly one, not just worth a penny. This is like a year's wages that a woman brings in. And she's going to give this great, costly gift. But both women are ready to give everything for Jesus in service to Him, to express their love and trust and faith in Him. If you look at the, the difference there, uh, one s small amount of money or, or a year's worth of wages, uh, they would seem like they would have a different impact. But both of them have that same impact uh, for Jesus. And he draws attention to this woman once again as he drew attention to the widow there. Jesus said um, in the midst of all this when, when there's so much uh, controversy breaking out uh, everybody else is in an uproar about what's being done here. Why all of this waste? That's all they saw. They saw a year's worth of wages and it's all going to be spent in one moment. The alabaster jar, um, where it came from, we're not sure. Was it a, a dowry that she had for uh, an upcoming wedding? Was it a family heirloom? Whatever it was, this was a very costly thing. A year's worth of wages. And it was a sealed up jar. You don't just twist off the top, pour a little on Jesus put the top back on and take it. You break open the jar and it's all going to be used up. 
And she's going to do that. She's going to use it all up, so much so that the room was just filled with this uh, beautiful scent at such great cost to her. Jesus, though, is commending the woman. As everybody else is rebuking her, as everybody else is uh, in this uproar, uh, being very indignant about what's happened, Jesus receives it so much differently. This was not a waste. Why are you bothering the woman? She has done a wonderful thing for me. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Jesus' life is being threatened. And this beautiful thing happens in the midst of all that. And some, at least, of his disciples are upset. It's always sad to see, and we've seen it throughout the story of Jesus already, where the disciples seem to be upset about the good things that are happening to Jesus because they don't quite understand yet. They will. They will come to a place of understanding, but to see them in this place where uh, Jesus said, "She she is preparing my body for burial. Why are you bothering her? And they can't seem to see past that. Then you you get to the other end of this uh, story. The the book ends again. And you come to Judas. Uh, Judas was one of those in the room there at the time. And again, Mark's uh, abbreviated account of this story doesn't give us the details of that where where John's account does. In verse chapter 12 there in John's account, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was the one that was about to betray him, said, He was the one that said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, as John goes on, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was going in it. Here you have one of Jesus' chosen 12 disciples that's raising a a fuss about this, not because of his real concern for the poor, as he might give indication to, but because that money could have been uh, in his pockets as well. What if I... What if we received that, uh, sold that, took the money, and maybe divided it up? Little for Jesus, little for me. That was the motivation for Judas. He's there in the room with the rest of the disciples, and he's the one causing maybe the, the verbal fuss about us, maybe leading this charge of indignation with them all. You have uh, a little bit of a, a greater glimpse uh, into the heart of Jesus or Judas uh, when you begin to see uh, where his focus is. John gives us that focus that um, there's there's money involved in this. If I could get some of that money, I would be then better off myself. And so when you get to this place where he meets with the Pharisees. Again, 
without the details, details uh, provided someplace else where um, he's going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. That's important for us to know as well when we look at uh, the story between the Pharisees and the woman and Judas. What, what value do each of them place on Jesus? Thirty pieces of silver. In, if, that's, if that's a shekel from the Israelites' uh, upbringing where they would understand the weight of a, a shekel of silver, that shekel would have been uh, about $10 in our market today. Um, maybe 30 pieces of that would be um, a day or uh, 30 pieces at $10, uh, a day and a half of wages on average, maybe for people here in the U.S., according to some statistics. If it was a, a Roman coin, the Roman silver coin, uh, that would have been worth a day's wage, and 30 of those is a month's worth of income. Regardless, Judas is about to betray Jesus either for as little as a day and a half's wages or, and put it this way too, or as little as a month's wages. What value did Judas put on the life of Jesus? No more than one month's wages. The woman, Mary, a year's worth. And the shame of coming into a place where she doesn't belong. And all that's going to come against her. She's willing to give all of that for Jesus. Judas, a fraction of that. The, the amount of value he puts on Jesus is in great contrast to the value that Mary puts on him. With everything that's been going on in the, in the religious leaders, they're, they're, they're operating out of this place of fear and they couldn't make it happen. And it took one of the twelve to tip the scales, if you, were, if you will, in the favor of the Pharisees. One of Jesus' own twelve was going to be instrumental in bringing about the capture and death of Jesus. This is one of those things that puts all kinds of questions in our minds. How is it that one of the twelve, one of the chosen twelve, one that was prayed over at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and God gave him these twelve, how is it that one of these chosen by Jesus is now going to betray him over to death? Maybe proximity to Jesus isn't the key in being a disciple. Certainly even the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were surrounding Jesus all along in His ministry, following Him everywhere, but proximity didn't mean anything for them other than it stirred up more hatred for Him. There's something else that's interesting to note 
in this whole exchange between um, what the Pharisees wanted to do and how it was supposed to have come about and then the turn of events. When the, when, when the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the whole Sanhedrin, they're all conspiring together to kill Jesus, they said, not yet though. We can't do it yet. This is not the time. Because you know, with all the festivities going on, if we do it now, this will be bad for us. So they'll wait. They'll wait until after Passover. Until after this seven or eight day period of festivities there in Jerusalem. We'll wait until after that when it's safe. God had different plans all along. And God even used Judas, one of the twelve, to betray him and speed up the timeline so that the sacrificial lamb would be sacrificed at Passover. Judas helped carry out the plan of God where it seemed as if even the religious leaders that were so bent against Jesus' ministry and wanted to kill him weren't going to carry it out at the right time. And so Judas plays this pivotal part into their hands so that the story of God happens as it should. It's a marvelous thing, brothers and sisters, to see how God works together everything for his purpose. The hatred of the the religious leaders against Jesus, the, the betrayal of one of his closest disciples that had been with him now for three years, put those two things together so that the eternal plan of God of salvation would come about at a time where it makes the most sense to do it. A time when they would celebrate being spared from death by the sacrificial lamb. And in the midst of this story is this woman who says, in whatever way, I'm going to let God use me And she's the one that gets to prepare him for the death that the Pharisees can't seem to pull off and the one that Judas is going to uh, help bring about. And she gets the privilege of being the one that would prepare him for that. This story uh, of contrasting reactions from, from hatred on either end and uh, love and devotion uh, in the middle gives us an opportunity for us to reevaluate where we're at. I've often said it's interesting to see which character uh, in the story that we read would you identify with? Uh, There's only one good one here, by the way. But is our Christian faith somehow, like the Pharisees, characterized by fear? If you and I took inventory of the way we live our lives in front of people, does fear come into that? Are we afraid to speak the name of Jesus, to proclaim our hope and our, and our assurance in this world? Is there something about that, 
that fearfulness that still permeates us? Are we prone to betrayal? Not, not in the way Judas did. He was the only one that took that. But you know, all the other disciples would play a part of lesser degree of betraying their Lord. In His final hour, they would all abandon Him. They would all leave Him. They would all, in some way, disown Him. And Peter, very verbally, in that moment when he could have stood as a martyr for Jesus, no matter what the cost, he would repeatedly say, I don't know the man. That still has the possibilities of infecting us as well where um, not wanting to be caught up in whatever it might mean would leave us in this place of I'm not going to proclaim Jesus at this moment because it, it might turn out badly for me. There's that place of fear that ends up in that situation as well when we betray, when we disown our Lord in our actions or our words or our lack of words. Or, uh, so if you think about those two ends of things and where you and I don't want to be anywhere near that way of thinking about our Christian faith. Fear and hatred and betrayal and disowning. I would never want anybody to characterize my life like that. Looking back though, there were times Maybe you've had that. Where an opportunity arose for you to give testimony to your faith and we shrunk back a little bit and didn't take the opportunity to proclaim it. But maybe like the woman here in the story, um, our love for Him is growing day by day. And it doesn't matter what the cost to us. We are going to do what God would call us to do. Whether people come against us or rebuke us, or shame us, or anything else, no matter the cost, we would stand firmly with our Savior and Lord. Mark gives us this picture of what people think the value of Jesus is to them. Some have very little value for Jesus in this world. You and I, though, are meant to be like the woman in the story. Everything for Jesus. Fully devoted. All my love for Him. Let's pray. Jesus, it even... shames me to think of the times where I have not stood up for Your name. Where I have maybe uh, missed the opportunity and didn't recognize how You had placed an opportunity before me to give evidence of my love and faith in You. And I've squandered those times so even for me, and maybe for many of us, Father, this is a story that reminds us 
But there's nothing greater than to stand with you always. To proclaim our love and trust in you at all times. And as we were talking about earlier, uh, even if persecution would happen, we wouldn't shrink back. Nothing would be worth not identifying with you at any place in our lives. So Jesus, help us by the, by the power of your Spirit living within us to, to stand faithfully at all times and, and learn even to be more and more uh, bold and forthcoming with our faith, uh, not thinking that this is a faith that belongs only to me, but it is a faith that is meant to be shared, especially when times get tough. So Holy Spirit, take what we have heard today and knit it deep within us so that when that next time comes, and we know it will, the next opportunity to show our love and devotion to You, uh, we would do that. We would stand up and once again proclaim, Jesus is always my Lord and Savior, and I will always serve Him. May that be our testimony now and always. In Jesus' precious name, amen.